0: So here we go, December 9th, 2012, uh, lecture discussion number 92 on the book of Romans. And yes, we're still at Romans 512, and therefore, because we're at Romans 512, we're also at Ro- or Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and Genesis 4, in case you are wondering or we're hoping we've moved along from the last couple of weeks. We haven't, and we won't move past Romans 512 through 14 for a while. Uh, I know that's frustrating. Uh, People hope that I move along quicker than I do, and I'm sorry for that. But as you know, not really. I'm not really sorry for that. That's a fake, not really, really sorry, or whatever that is. Anyway. The reason I keep repeating Romans 5.12 and Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and Genesis 4. It's not on the board, but just let me say it again. Romans 5.12, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 4. And a couple of you have noticed, by the way, that I'm doing that. Uh, I'm I'm adding who to uh, what is normal, I guess, if you will, in the church today. Most pastors will give you lectures on Genesis 5.12 and take you back to Genesis 3. Very few will tell you that you really need to go back to Genesis 2, and nobody includes Genesis 4 that I'm aware of, but I am insisting that Cain Cain and Abel are connected to Romans 5.12, and I so insist because Cain and Abel are. Uh, indeed, absolutely linked to Romans 5.12. Through one man, right? Sin entered the world, and death spread to all, because all sin. Romans 5.12, my truncated version. That verse has contained within it the purpose or the necessity of the virgin birth, which we won't be celebrating. in the, Never mind. But Romans 5.12 has the purpose and the necessity of the virgin birth, or if you will, you can call it the seed of the woman, uh, which then becomes a discussion of the origin of blood or what's also called blood chemistry. Romans 5.12 takes you to how did blood originate or how does blood originate and, and what is the chemistry of the blood. And as you know, uh, uh, many of you ask me where I, where I got my positions. Um, most of my positions I, I have come to over the years, a couple of them, uh, uh, I really did rely on certain people. As you know, one of those men is M. R. DeHaan, uh, Fr- Arnold Fruchtenbaum. I have a lot of Arthur Pink in me, though he wouldn't like some of my views, and I don't like some of his. Um, I have uh, a lot of Clarence Larkin uh, as a young man trying to think of who else. Edward Chumney had a big impact on me with regard to the feast days. So did Larkin, for that matter. But when it comes to these kinds of issues uh, with regard to the blood and uh, types of Christ, uh, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, M.R. DeHaan, as a young man, his radio program as a young boy, I take it back, uh, his radio program was pretty much all you listened to uh, if you were listening to Christian broadcasting. So uh, he's had... Uh, uh, a profound impact not the sons of course of him but his, but mr dehan who died i think in the mid 60s so i i remember as uh, hearing it and at the time going back to what i said in the announcements everybody in the church knew this stuff when i was a young man and no one in I don't remember anyone being surprised by it or arguing over it and but now it's gone. So Romans five twelve, just I've lost track of myself a second. Romans five twelve is about blood and the necessity of the virgin birth, which is about blood. The whole reason you have a virgin birth is because of the blood. The man's role in the blood, if you will. It's obvious, I hope, to you that we have a virgin birth and, and that the man is eliminated from the process there. Well, why is the man eliminated from the process should be the first question. Again, that was just elementary. That was Sunday school material taught to young children. And now it's almost completely absent. It's very frustrating. But the man is eliminated because of blood, because of blood chemistry, because of how the blood process originates in humanity or in human beings. And so that's why Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, has a relationship to Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12 takes you to the virgin birth. Virgin birth is about blood. Uh, uh, Cain and Abel is about what? Fundamentally, Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, is about blood, chemistry. Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, establishes the principle of blood sacrifice only. You can't have any other sacrifice but a blood sacrifice. And that naturally and logically flows from Genesis 2 and 3. Now, admittedly, some very prominent professors at the very prominent seminaries vehemently disagree with me, the ranting idiot. Uh, and those professors and those ty- and that, those people who have the contrary doctrine to that, they insist or assert that Genesis 4 is is not about blood at all. Cain and Abel has nothing to do with blood at all. It is about the mind or the heart, if you will, of Cain. That is by far nowadays the predominant view in the seminaries and in most of the churches. The blood view that I have um, uh, has lost its. Position. So I'm disagreed with by them that say that it is the mind or the heart of Cain and not the sacrifice, and not about the blood sacrifice at all. The blood sacrifice, or the contrast between the blood sacrifice of Abel and the bloodless sacrifice of, uh, of uh, Cain has no, no, no issue at all here. And they also are the people that have this view by the way, almost universally fail to include the progression of Genesis two, Genesis three to Genesis four. They treat Genesis two as if it is separate, Genesis three as if it is separate, and then as Genesis four is as as is As if it is completely separate from Genesis 3 and Genesis 2. Genesis 3 culminates with Adam and Eve being covered by something. What does it, that's the climax, if you will. That's the whole point of Genesis 3. This, this culmination of Adam and Eve being covered by something. What were they covered by? Blood. And then we have the protection of the tree of life. That is the culmination. That is the final chapter, if you will. The blood covering and the guarding of the tree or the protecting of the tree of life, lest Adam and Eve reached out their hand, or Adam specifically mentioned. Genesis 4 is then the contrast of the bloodless sacrifice of Cain against the blood-filled sacrifice of Abel. It is the natural, logical progression. It did not have anything to do with the heart of Cain at all. It has everything to do with what sacrifice does God want? The one with blood in it, or the one with no blood? Because, you see, there's only really two kinds of sacrifices, aren't there? They're either blood sacrifice or non-blood sacrifice. That's all you get. There's no reason to even talk about it any other way. And by the way, the blood sacrifice contrast is the reason that God's the slain animals that he covers Adam and Eve with at the end of Genesis 3. When you see this contrast between these two sacrifices of Cain and Abel, now you understand, if you will, the reason for the... See, everybody asks me, why did he kill two animals? Did he have to kill two animals to get blood? Don't you ever ask these kinds of crazy questions alone at night. Nobody's around to think you're crazy. Could he have made God's blood by the gallon store? Come in and get a 55-gallon drum of God's blood. Could he make blood? Let's ask that. Can God make blood? Yes. So did he have to kill animals to get blood and skins? No. Well, yes. Because what? Because he's omniscient. And so, but I'm just giving you hypotheticals to cause you emotional problems. He can hypothetically, grant me the hypothetically without, or the, concede the hypothetical without the omniscience factor, and you recognize, okay, he killed the animals to get the blood. He wanted the slaying of the innocent for the blood, right? That's very important. But, so you get the reason for the slaying of the innocent for the blood. It's not just the blood, it's also the innocence. God will only accept an innocent blood covering. Nothing else, not any other thing he will accept but an innocent blood covering. The blood must be innocent. What's that mean? Sinless, guiltless. He will accept innocent blood covering. He will not take a garment of figs or a garment of of anything else, a raiment, a covering of anything else but innocent blood. That's how it works. That's why he does what he does in Genesis 4. After he just did that in Genesis 3. So how could you possibly say Genesis 4 is not about the blood covering when all it is about is the blood covering? It drives me crazy. And I become what? The ranting idiot. Yes, You know the answer to those kinds of questions now almost immediately. I don't know if that's good or bad. I will assume it's good. Don't tell me otherwise. Anyway, those who will not and cannot or won't or whatever recognize the blood context of Genesis 2, 3, and 4... All we can do is set them aside. Bless their hearts. They are whom um, uh, Mr. DeHaan, to give, quote him again, I hope I'm quoting him, he, he said of them, they are miserably wrong, and it is love to tell them so. I agree. Needless to say, uh, those folks, uh, those, the, 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 the vaunted professorial or professor, the professors, they don't particularly like me for saying so. That uh, they are miserably wrong, but it's my job to say so, Ezekiel 3.16-19, through 19, so I say so. And again, Genesis 2 is also about blood, and more on that later. Blood, blood, blood. That's what you get, Genesis 2, 3, and 4. But considering, by the way, that we've undertaken the seed of the woman, the virgin birth, in uh, Matthew 1, 22, 23, because the seed of the woman is the virgin birth, you, if you wish, you can interchange them, Matthew 1, two twenty-three. let me repeat that. And both the seed of the woman and the virgin birth are both blood-centered studies for most. That's what they are. You should, as certainly the virgin birth is blood-centered. The seed of the woman, I will also say, is blood-centered. They are almost identical in that respect. You should at least for today be fully aware that we study and believe something as Christians. We study the gospel and we study, study the scripture. And the, are the, are the Bible, if you will, as a whole. Uh, the gospel, the truth of the Bible, the truth of scripture. And the gospel, uh, and the Bible, or the scripture, is, is one thing, if, if nothing else. It is a book about blood. The Bible is a book of blood without dispute. That is all that, it should have been, in my, I have a black one, you should have a red one. They should all be read, because they are a book of blood. And the Bible proclaims not only is it a book of blood but is it is a book of something about that blood it is a book of it is a living book it's alive It is the only book ever of of which it is said that it claims to be alive and the life that is in the Bible is what Let me tell you the life that is in you Levit- Le- Leviticus 17:11 The life is in the blood Let's just uh, let's just take uh, the Bible aside for a second and focus on the human body. Our life is in our blood, and our blood does what? Blood is unique. What's it do that nothing else in your body really does? Everything else in your body has a fixed location, but not what? And now, again, uh, blood as opposed to secretions. I secrete things. That's not blood. That's a product. Blood circulates through your body. It moves. It runs through your whole body. The blood that is described in Scripture is the circulation in the Bible. So blood is the circulation system of your Bible, just as your blood is your circulation system of your body. Blood is omnipresent in the Bible and it moves through the Bible and circulates inside of it, just like our circulation system. It's pumping through. And the Bible says it's a living book, just like we have a living body. Just as we have this fluid, moving body, I'm sorry, fluid, uh, moving blood, so also is the Bible designed. So what's the obvious conclusion? That whoever designed you, designed the Bible. The writer of you, if you will, and the writer of the Bible are the same author. We have fixed tissue that is stationary, and it is serviced by the blood circulation system that brings nourishment and, bring, and carries away waste. The body is supplied and cleaned by the blood. Start making the connection. The blood also does something within your body. What's it do? It communicates from cell to cell. Constantly, every cell is communicated with by the moving blood. Hopefully, you're making the the obvious connections. And hopefully, you're aware as to why we're now called the body of Christ. He wants to make sure that you know that you are part of a body and there is communication to you and to everyone. We are little cells, if you will. And the blood is moving to us and through us, cleansing us and carrying away waste. Uh, And I want you to recognize how his resurrection is proof that his blood, Christ's blood, how Jesus Christ's resurrection um, is proof that his blood is still in existence. And that, by the way, tells us that uh, our eternal life is sound because it's dependent upon his blood. His resurrection tells you that his Blood is still in existence, that his blood is pure life blood, that it could not and did not go into corruption. Every drop of his blood still exists today. It could not disintegrate. It's different from our blood. What made it different? The virgin birth process demonstrates that it's different, by the way. And hopefully you can see if your blood or my blood fails to reach the cells of the fixed tissue, what happens to those tissues they die if i don't have the blood touch the tissues the tissues die if the blood doesn't get to the cells the cells die if the blood doesn't get to us what happens to us we die tissues quickly die so a mere shallow study of the flowing of blood through the pages of the bible blah 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 bible is a Contraction of blood and Bible. I should patent it. If You just take a little bit of time and you study how blood flows through the pages of the Scripture. And then you take the same amount, a little bit of time, correspondingly study the flowing of blood through the human or an animal body. You're going to immediately recognize and conclude that both the Bible and the body are the same person. Uh, who designed them? It's it's cannot be explained any other way, and that's something that no biology class ever even discusses, or ever ever will discuss. It, it just won't happen. The churches don't discuss it. Let's do a little survey. How many of you in your life as Christians? Some of you are pretty advanced. Uh, uh, you're my age or better. How many of you have ever heard somebody say there is a relationship between the blood design of the human body and the blood design of the Bible? Raise your hands, be aggressive. You're all very wise for never raising your hands. How many knew that but refused to raise your hand? How many know that's a trick to get me to, or get you to raise your hand? Yes, how clever you are. Let the record show that no one raised their hand for varieties of reasons here, but I will, I will hazard to guess that you've never heard it before. And why not? Where, where is the church? What is happening to the church? It dies if something doesn't reach it. What kills the church? If the blood, the doctrine of the blood of Christ does not reach the church, the church quickly dies. That is what's happening to us, the Christian church in this nation. Anyway, obviously, it's not happenstance or coincidence that Jesus Christ calls himself the Lamb of Blood. And Judas, Judas himself, called Christ something. Matthew 27.4, he calls him, and you know my Judas position. And the first time I recognized this, I went, my goodness, is this a complex statement that Judas makes. Just before he throws the money. He, he's, he comes in because he knows he has a problem. I just discussed Judas in other lectures all over sermon audio and elsewhere. But Judas himself called Jesus Christ the innocent blood. Matthew 27.4. You have to have an old King James to find that article. The innocent blood. There is no other innocent blood but this one. That's what he says. We'll get to that later. The blood. The only blood that did not have sin in existence. And hopefully you immediately now see this is the innocent blood that can cover, which is exactly Genesis 3, Right? God makes it clear during the Exodus Passover that innocent, sinless blood must be seen by Him. When I see the blood, I will pass over, Exodus 12:13. When He passes over, what does that mean? That means that you are saved from death. So the innocent blood that he sees, he will pass over. It's a sign to God. The blood is a sign to God and to us, if you will. He sees the sign of the innocent blood, and he passes over. And and you are saved, I am saved, we are saved from death by the covering or the sprinkling of the innocent blood. Notice God never said and did not say then, will never say ever, when I see your works, your effort, your church attendance, your tithes, what you have earned... Then I'll pass over. He never says that. Your goodness. He never says that. We have no goodness. None are good, no, not one. Quit telling yourself that you have goodness apart from Christ. Goodness is defined as Christ. He passes over when he sees the innocent blood. He says it as plain as he can then and only then he passes over without the blood there is no life the life is in the blood how many times must he say it over and over he says it but the largest religious religions and frankly the largest christian churches overwhelmingly most people will not believe this is true jesus christ said uh, I am the resurrection and the life, if you will. I'll put it in this way: I am the resurrection and the life, blood. Do you believe this? John eleven twenty five 25 through twenty six, and the world answers what? No. No, almost in unison. The, the church says well, we have, or the world says that we have some goodness. We're going to be fine. We can overcome our poisoned blood with our rules and our laws and our memberships and our traditions and our ceremonies. That's what's going to save us, they say, And, and that's a big really. Church membership and religious practices can solve, can, can take care of poisoned blood. Does that make sense to you? Your goodness can. I see, if I see the blood, I will pass over. That's it. Your church membership card or your tithing record are of no significance to God at all with regard to salvation. He must see the innocent blood. How ignorant can human beings be to think otherwise? That answers itself. Anyway, before we begin today's lecture, I'm glad you're laughing. One final thing about blood for now. And its origin, or when it begins, if you will, in us humans, it's very important that you know this. We have a lot of medical people in this church, and that's of real value. And you should, as a medical person, tell as many people as you can this kinds of thing here. Everybody asks me, how can I witness? And I say, well, just tell people about blood. That's cool. Not one single drop of blood ever passes from the mother to her baby inside of her. Not one single drop of blood. The placenta forms the link between the mother and her child, and it is designed. Somebody designed it and then constructed it that no actual exchange of blood occurs between the mother and the child. So what's the obvious question? If the mother supplies not one single drop of blood, who supplies the blood? I'll take answers from the audience. You really don't have very many choices, do you? Yeah. Obviously, the father supplies the blood. I'm fascinated, by the way, by that very true thing. Because where do I I now have to take that information back to? Back to the seed of the woman in the virgin birth, back I go. So now, what's the next obvious question? Make the connection. Who supplied the blood to the holy thing, or if you will, the infant God? Notice how I say that, not infinite, infant God. God, the infant, the holy thing, the Christ child. God in the flesh. Who supplied the blood to the holy thing? It tells you very clearly who, who didn't, who didn't supply the blood. Joseph did not supply the blood. Mary cannot supply the blood. She's not designed to. Women are not designed to. So who supplied the blood? The father did. Who was the father? The Holy Spirit hovered over the Christ child and provided the blood. God himself provided the blood for God himself. Does that make sense? Let me repeat that. God himself provided the blood for God himself. Now, what do I know about the blood? See, Adam's blood was poisoned, right? And all blood from all men is poisoned, it could not be used. No human being could be used in this process of, uh, of the Messiah, of God adding humanity, because human beings, men, have poisoned blood. Adam's blood and all his descendants have death blood. Jesus Christ, God himself, calls himself the seed of the woman because of Adam's blood spreading this poison Jesus is the only one, by the way, who calls himself the seed of the woman. No one else is ever called the seed of the woman but Jesus Christ. And that is because Jesus Christ has not one drop of Adam's poisoned blood. Not one, not any, even on the minutest level, is there anything of Adam's blood in Christ. That's why he calls himself the seed of the woman. The only one to ever be so called. So you can start your conversations this Christmas by saying that, you know, the only one who ever is called the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. Do you know why? It's because the woman supplies not one drop of blood. And now, by the way, we have to address the difference. I'm not writing on the board because I want to make sure I get through today. I'll do all of this next week. Now we've got to address the difference between something. Because we have blood, what do we have that's always said with blood? If I went blank in blood, what would you say? You would say flesh. Very good. We have to know the difference between flesh and blood. What is the difference between flesh and blood? See, I, I put flesh in one column and I put all the characteristics of flesh. I put blood in the other column and put all the characteristics of blood. Poisoned blood poisons flesh. What does living blood do? Okay, we have to deal with that question. The next question that, we, that we're going to have to address as the weeks go by. How did the animals all become subject to death? Why do they age and die? Sierra is aging and dying. Or right, the German shepherd that came with the girl. I'm watching her, and I know it's pretty soon. Why does she die? Why do animals die? How did the animals begin to die? The exact process of animal death, the origin of it, the the anatomy of animal death. uh, That's Genesis 3 again, by the way. Okay? Those are just questions we have to deal with, and, and now we can start the sermon. Got plenty of time. Last Sunday, I ended by asking about Eve's two requests. For those of you who are not here, I have the position that the now dying woman, having eaten from the first tree, had come back to the federal head, uh, the second king of Eden, the first Adam, and she brought the poison with her. Oh, we should probably read that together. Let's do that. We've got some time, so we will. That'll help you, I think. Genesis uh, 3, 4 through 7. It's not very long. Let me read it, and you guys can follow along. And uh, this is, by the way, I can't say this enough. This is such a complicated uh, living story with blood flowing through it. It's amazing. You can't even function... You gotta go one word at a time. Eve says something to the serpent, or to Satan. She said, Uh, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die, which isn't exactly what God said. And when the serpent heard that, he knew what to do. She had made a mistake right there. And he pounced on it. Then, Let me put it this way. Then after hearing her mistake, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God is a liar. That's what he's saying. You will not surely die. If God is a liar, by the way, what's the problem we now have? If God has sin in him, what's the problem we have? We have no innocent blood. There's no source of innocent blood now. Because he can't even supply innocent blood, can't he? He cannot be the father. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows. God knows you won't die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, so there's three things there. She took of its fruit and ate. Four if you count the last one. She break that. Verse down into the first half of that verse into four parts we 'll do that. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. That is the fifth part, and it is by the way i 'll walk get to that in a minute. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew. That they were naked and they, they had knowledge, by the way, of something. And it is nakedness. So what is nakedness to God in the context? And they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves. Why fig leaves? They could pick anything. Now, figs are fairly large leaves, but they're not so dramatic that you would want to make clothing out of them. Why the fig leaves? And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Why did they even want a covering? Obvious question, what happened to their covering? Okay, note again immediately that Satan begins with God is lying in response to the mistake, if you will, that Eve or the woman made. Now, the woman believes that God is lying, doesn't she? He says God is a liar and the woman believes it. How do I know the woman believes that Satan said God is a liar? Because she goes for the tree, right? It's an if-then or a... Or a It's just a natural progression again. As soon as she concedes that God is a liar and believes that Satan is telling the truth. How did he convince her, by the way, that she wouldn't die? We'll get to that as uh, as time goes by. But she's convinced of it. She believes that God is lying. How long did this take? How long did this argument go? How long did it take her to do it? How fast was she convinced? That's important. Also notice that there are two eating events. The woman has an eating event, for lack of a better way to describe it. I've described it this way for a while, so until somebody gives me a better way of describing it, we'll call it an eating event. The woman has an eating event. Who witnesses her eating event? Satan does, or the serpent. The woman has an eating event with the serpent, and then the first Adam has an eating event with the woman. She's at both eating events. Satan is at one, Adam is at the other. It's clear from First Timothy 2.14 and 15 that the serpent is not present at the second eating event. Because 1 Timothy tells me that Adam was not deceived. And therefore it is clear that Adam is not present at the first eating event. Because if he were, he would be deceived. Because he would have allowed the woman... To believe the lie. And she is the first in transgression. She is the first to sin. Of Adam and herself, she is the first one to sin. And that cannot be true, First Timothy 2.14 and 15, if Adam is present at the first eating event. So therefore, the only conclusion available that is consistent with all the applicable scriptures is that there is a significant period of time between the two eating events. Called the Hebrew principle of, of recurrence. They put time in between even sentences. How long a time is between the two eating events, that's not resolved. I'll do my best to resolve it. How, how much time that is, no one can know for sure, but I think we can find clues in Scripture. But Satan is not present at the second event and eating event and Adam is not present at the first. Remember. The angelic host is in awe of Adam's capacity. Let me repeat that. The angelic host saw Adam and they saw what he was capable of and it blew their minds. He was unbelievable to them. He had mental and physical power demonstrated to them that was astonishing and unique. And they saw it. How do I know that? Adam can do something. He can name vast amounts of animals. Adam is one who has been given authority by God to name. What does that mean? What did that mean to the angels? What does that mean to you? He has the mental capacity to name, and he has the authority to name, and that's great power. Think it through. I'll help you. Adam can keep track of enormous amounts of information. Can you imagine the angels watching him name things? What do you think the angels had to do versus what did Adam have to do? How fast did he name them? What were the angels trying to keep track of? How big the, uh, the, is the naming committee? How fast did Adam overwhelm them? He's giving them things, that he is showing his capabilities, and they don't have it. He has the authority and the ability. The angels would want to know immediately once they figured out that they could not keep up, and I believe that's obvious in scripture, that they could not do what he could do. But they couldn't even come close. They're writing them down, I'm sure. I could just imagine the, the secretarial staff trying to keep up. And the first question they would have is, does he have a limit? He can keep track of enormous amounts of information. Who else can keep track of enormous amounts of information? Yeah, they're beginning to compare him. They want to know what his limits are. If there were any remember any limits at all. How much, in other words, can Adam remember? And, and you need to know that the, one of the names of God is the rememberer. He is the one who remembers. That's his name. And Adam is putting on a remembering demonstration that is astonishing. And then add to that, Adam is not deceivable by who? Satan. First Timothy two, fourteen and fifteen. Can't deceive him. What's that make him comparatively to Satan? Yeah, he is he's smarter. Satan is filled to the brim with wisdom, but Adam has more. And he can name. And they are going, holy, almost said crap. (laughs) They are freaked out by this demonstration of this incredible creation. And they know he's a creation. Those true attributes by themselves were stunning. This new king of Eden is exceptional, and the angels would see that. And now add to those qualities or those two attributes, add the multiplying aspect, if you will, the ability also to affect the new organic physical reality. And then the free will existence attribute, their characteristic that's made evident Evident by the placing of the two trees in the midst of the garden, and now you have this totality from the that, that from the angelic host perspective is is incredible, and they have to say all of this has to be something from their perspective. They're going to now, because this isn't how it works because um, all of this is from God's perspective outside of time, but from their perspective inside of time, they have to see this amazing creation, this Adam thing. They can do this stuff. They have to see him as a response to something. What do they have to think he's God's response, if you will? Poorly said, theologically unsound to say it that way. But what do they have to see Adam? This, this amazing person. They can do stuff. Satan is not smarter than him. What do they think he is? He's the new king. Who do they think he's the king over? they got to think he's the king over them and they got to think that it's a response to their chaos and ruin that has resulted from the satanic rebellion adam's abilities are connected to the fall of the angels and therefore they are connected or his abilities are connected to the first lie of satan so set that aside for a while the woman leaves adam goes to the two trees is confronted by Satan, takes the poison, now she knows she's dying, she leaves Satan, takes the evidence of her death with her, and returns to the first Adam. And I've said on many occasions that Adam was uh, very well prepared for this. He has to be. He's Adam. He has more wisdom than Satan. He had thought through what he might have to do, I am sure. And this is not a man who was taken by surprise. He had a plan and he discussed it with the woman. If he didn't discuss it with the woman, remember a few weeks ago I said, why didn't he tie her up and throw her in a pit and just box her in and never let her out? Why not? Because he loves her. He has no sin at this point. Love is not control. He knows she has free will. He knows he can't control the free will. Let that be a lesson to you husbands and a lesson to you wives. You cannot control the other one's free will. You can't. Stop trying. You can influence them. That's the old... The old, uh, I was listening again. I, I listen, as you know, to Dennis Prager. I, I like Dennis Prager. He's not a doctrinal... Uh, the person but um, um, he says things that are interesting to me so I enjoy listening to him and he said uh, complaining won't work if your plan to control somebody else's behavior is to constantly complain to them that won't work but you've already started out with a failure by doing what? thinking you're going to control their behavior if you think you can control their behavior, then you're not loving them. You're trying to control them. Controlling them is not loving them. It's weakening them. You're making them a boneless chicken. Anyway, that was just for those of you who say I never do any marriage application thing. Adam is not surprised. He wasn't going to ever control Eve. He wanted her to grow, or the woman, he wanted her to grow and to develop. And so he has to let her do that, to control her, is, or to imprison her, if you will. Why not just shoot her? That would work, huh? Then she couldn't possibly, possibly sin. We'll just blow her away right now. By the way, that was the process of the Spanish Inquisition, was it not? They would save the people, and as soon as they confessed Christ, they'd execute them. Because they didn't want them to lose their salvation. That's true. It's what they did. Idiots. God only sees what? Innocent blood. He does not see. I'll get to that in a minute. But Adam had a had a plan. He wasn't surprised, and he discussed it with the woman. More on that later. Just keep in mind that whatever you may conclude about Adam and the woman, it it, it must remain consistent with the facts of Romans five twelve through fifteen and First Timothy two fourteen through fifteen, and the naming of the woman and the naming of the animals in Genesis three twenty, and the sentences in Genesis three fourteen and nineteen, the death of the two animals uh, um, that are slain. By the way, not one animal, two deaths of two animals. That's important. And the protection of the tree provided by God, the second tree, Genesis 3.22. Anyway, last week I proposed that the woman returns to Adam and confesses that she was fooled into believing that God lies. That's what she does. And shows Adam the evidence. She brings the poison with her. She's got the evidence. And she's also missing arraignment. That's another story the garment that God gave her. And I said that she made two requests or cries, if you will, or pleas. And the first request last week I said was, Save me. She comes back with the evidence to her husband that she knows loves her. He proves it. By the very fact that she's able to walk out there and do this, proves that he was not in control or did not seek control of her. This in spite of the great power that he had. And she comes back to him And says, save me. That's the first request. And then the bell rang and class was over before I could answer what her second cry was. Okay? And I really do want to get a bell so that we can start it in class. Imagine how the visitor would react to that. It would be great. Much less the Internet. Oh, that's the bell. Sorry, we have to quit now. Just like it was when I was teaching eighth grade. As soon as that bell rang, it in. Less than four seconds that classroom was empty, very much like churches today, in most churches. We don't have that problem. Why? That's right. Free food, baby. That's what's stopping that. But anyway, I would love to have a bell. Eric would love to have a bell to start the sermon. He would. And the doors automatically close, and you have to beat on them. He would count how many times his mother was caught. Anyway, after the imaginary bell rang, I did answer the question, the second question. The Internet folks didn't hear it. They had, to be, they had to think it through on their own. But as you know, it's pretty apparent. First, the woman pleads to be saved, and then she cries out not to be forsaken. And I, I built that case after, as I said. Uh, the Saved and forsaken are two aspects of Christ that uh, are everywhere in the New Testament. He quotes them. He quotes Psalm 22. He says, the, uh, he responds to uh, uh, Peter in the uh, seas. And Peter, this were great type of Israel. So you see this typology of Israel here. And Israel does the same thing. Save us. Do not forsake us. Why have you forsaken us? They mistakenly think that God has forsaken them and he has not. So that's her two things that she says. Save me and do not forsake me. Her two cries, her two pleas, her two requests. And Adam could not do both. Do you see that he could not do both? To save the woman, what would Adam have to do? He'd have to sacrifice himself and provide his sinless blood, right? And that would have necessitated his substitutionary sacrificial death. Physical death. And by the way, the Adam had thought this through, and the woman had also known. And both Adam and the woman were now very much aware of something. They now knew that eating the poison did not result in immediate physical death. One of the first things that Adam saw, and I think he thought that through too, he had figured out that wasn't the case. I know Satan had figured it out. Adam and Eve are now very much aware that the poison wasn't immediate. It wasn't a black mamba. There was time involved. How much time now would be on the table? How much time does does Eve have, or the woman have? If I eat from the fruit, how much time will I have? Is there a difference between the two of us? All of that had to be dealt with. And again, Satan had figured out Uh, that there wasn't immediate one-step death, physical death. And he used that to deceive the woman. Satan knew what that second tree was about. I believe Adam knew what the second tree was about. There had to be time to get to the second tree. How much time, we don't know. Now we know. How long did, did Adam live? 930 years. How long did Eve live? A long, long time. Maybe more, maybe less, but pretty close to a thousand years. Eating from the tree did not result in immediate physical death, but it did result in immediate spiritual death or separation. Now you're in a discussion of what does death mean to God? How does he define it? Something that uh, Satan, by the way, had already experienced. So that's how I figure that he knows it. How much time remained again is now an issue. I submit that Adam also anticipated the possibility of time being on his side in a sense because he knew God very, very well. And this is a brilliant, brilliant man. A deep thinking man that that understood things that we'll never understand. Because he knew that God was a God that was love-filled, and that God always gives time to the dying, doesn't He? He would figure that out, because that is what God does. But now the question of how to uh, how to not forsake the woman remains with the uh, remains the immediate crisis to deal with. If Adam abandons the woman, she will eventually do what? She's deceivable. If she's deceivable once, she's deceivable twice. What's she going to do? She's going to go to the second tree and die forever. He cannot forsake her or she's going to die forever. Therefore, his ability to provide his blood is a problem. Can you see how that is so? If he dies and gives her her blood, he forsakes her, doesn't he? If he joins her in sin, she doesn't have an antidote, if you will. If Adam dies as a substitute, what would the woman do if she had new life now? If she had new blood, got a blood transfusion, what does she do now? By the way, how's her flesh affected? i got to define flesh and blood. But let's just grant the hypothetical again. If Adam dies as a substitute uh, and the woman has a blood transfusion and she's okay, but she's now alone, she's forsaken, does she return to the tree of death? Will the lab chase the ball into traffic? Yes, the lab will. How many times? Every time. Will the woman go back to the first tree if Adam abandons her or dies for her? See? See the problem? How does God, by the way, render the tree of death impotent? He does. And only God can save, by the way, and give life. We'll get to that. in a, uh, a permanently save would be the right way to put it. Only God can eternally save. A created being cannot eternally save. You see, I made that comment last week. The saver, the eternal saver is Christ. Adam at best could be what? Temporary saver. Is there such a thing as a temporary saver? Now I'm going to destroy once again your eternal security view if it is contrary to eternal security. There is only one definition. Salvation must be permanent in order to be salvation. If it isn't permanent, you never had salvation. You have something else, but it's not salvation. Salvation has to be permanent. The definition of salvation requires it to be permanent. It has to be salvation. There is no such thing as temporary salvation. That is just something that's temporary. It isn't salvation. Just like existence requires free will to be existence. Life is defined by God as eternal. Temporal salvation is what? Or temporary salvation is what? It's death. Thank you, through. Let's rise and be dismissed musicians come forward.